This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Beginning Again series, hosted by writer Beverly Willette, who brings us powerful stories about folks who encountered hardship and have to somehow start over in their lives. And here's Beverly's latest. One morning in 1986, New Yorkers opened their newspapers, including me in my apartment in Brooklyn. We saw the photo of a 24-year-old woman named Marla Hansen staring back at us with stitches all over her face. This beautiful woman, a Missouri native who'd gone to college in Texas and then moved to New York City to begin a modeling career, had been brutally slashed with razors the night before outside a Manhattan restaurant. Marla didn't know the two men who had cut up her face, but she did know the man behind it. I had been living in an apartment that was owned by a makeup artist, and he had maintained his own set of keys and would come in the apartment at will anytime he felt like it. You'd be walking out of the shower naked, and there he would be. You would, you know, come out of your bedroom in the morning, and there he would be. And it was a little unnerving for myself and my three other roommates. So we had a um, dorm meeting, and I was the one elected to um, speak to him about it. And when I, when I confronted him about not coming to our apartment and not, you know, coming in, he reacted very violently. It was scary. So I decided I would move out. And he reacted to that very violently. Um, He owed me my rental deposit back, so I agreed to meet him in person in um, a public place. I was scared of him by that point. I already had a bad feeling, so I thought, okay, if I meet him in a public place, a restaurant that was located at the bottom floor of my building, I'll be okay. So I did that, and I wasn't okay. I walked out of the... um, the restaurant, when it became clear he wasn't going to return my rental deposit, he just, I don't know why he even met me. It was kind of an odd meeting. I walked out, and all I had to do was walk out of the building and then turn, a, you know, turn and go into the entrance of the apartment building. It was the same building, just a different door. So I walked out, and as I was turning to go into the building, there were two men standing in the shadows. And um, I wasn't going to make it in the building. They were blocking my way. So I turned to walk the other way. And I thought, oh, walk around the corner to the deli that was there. And I was walk- as I walked away, I noticed them step out of the shadows and start to follow me. And the landlord also came out of the restaurant and began to walk with me. And I knew at that moment that I was in some trouble. Trouble would turn out to be an understatement. Even though Marla made the perfectly natural assumption, we all do that meeting in a public place will keep us safe. I knew there was a police station nearby, so I was trying to make my way there, but I didn't get there. There was a parking lot behind the building, and as I reached the parking lot, they caught up with me and dragged me into the the parking lot. And while I was trying to defend myself from like a rape attack, I didn't realize they were doing something to my face. They were kind of waving their hands. One held me down. The landlord went off to be a lookout. And the other one was moving his hands sort of wildly in front of my face. 
I didn't realize until I looked down at my white T-shirt, which had turned red from all the blood, what had happened. Somebody had seen what was happening, uh, you know, a neighbor that was walking down the street, and he started shouting and running toward them. At that point, they ran away, and I was able to pull myself away from the situation and run. We hear about the power of love all the time, but fear is an equally powerful force because it's so tied to our instinct for survival. I was curious about how this fight for survival figured into Marla's experience. So I did some research and found that scientists liken the reaction we have to fear to a reflex, and that less than a tenth of a second occurs between what precipitates our fear and the reaction itself. Here's what was running through Marla's mind during the split second after the attack, right before she was able to run away. You do what you need to do to survive. It was almost like I went on autopilot, and I knew I was in a survival moment, and I got very calm. Interestingly, um, there would be waves of panic, though. It was kind of like a wave would come over, and I'd panic, and then I would stop and breathe and think, okay. You know, I was, I screamed, clearly, people heard me. I don't even remember doing it, though. It's almost like it sort of just happened, but nobody helped. People, there were all sorts of cars going into the, um, I want to say the Lincoln Tunnel. It's right by the Lincoln Tunnel. And it was a busy night, lots and lots of cars. You know, they rolled their windows up. Nobody helped me. And the moment when I saw people looking at me and not helping, I thought, okay, I have to help myself. Nobody would help. I had to help myself, she said. So that's what Marla did. She made her way back to the restaurant where she told people to call the police and hospital and ask for wet towels. She said her face was bleeding so badly she could put her fingers inside it. That's when she got very lucid, she said. And then the cops arrived to take her to the hospital. As I was getting in the car, there was a lot of stuff in the back of the car, like boxes and things like that. So there was barely any room for me, but I squeezed myself in. And as I was shutting the door, the landlord jumped in the car, almost on my lap, and shut the door and then announced that he was my boyfriend and started barking orders. So that was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know what to say. So I, oh, he's tried to kill me already. And um, I just shut up. I went really silent. And when we come back, more on this story from Beverly Willette, the story of Marla Hansen. This is our Beginning Again series. And what a story it is. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. And if you have a Beginning Again story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information, and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And now let's return to Beverly's latest feature on Marla Hansen, the New York model whose perverted landlord hired men to brutally slash her face with a razor blade in 1986. And by the way, if you were living in New York or near New York at the time, and I was, those pictures in the New York Post were horrifying. When we left off, Marla escaped her attackers and got into a police car, and then her landlord jumped into their car and pretended to be her boyfriend. Let's hear what happens next. police had um, caught the attackers and then the landlord of course was in the car with me they said we're going to make a stop on the way to the hospital you're okay and you know just tell us if you recognize anyone so they stopped and there were the two guys that cut me were on the ground in handcuffs so I was able to identify them at that point and and then get to the hospital as soon as I got to the hospital, I told them that the guy in the car was not my boyfriend. In fact, he was the guy that did this to me. I didn't even know if they would believe me because I was having trouble believing it myself. But I woke up the next morning from surgery and there was a little um, urinal bottle <laughs> with flowers in it and a note from the police saying that they believed me and that they had, in fact, arrested the makeup artist that orchestrated the attack and that they all three guys were behind bars. And they said, rest assured, justice will be served. But justice would not be served for several years, if it ever was. Although that's generally what we tend to believe in America, we're brought up to believe that justice will also be swift. But that didn't happen for Marla either. Of course we need to hold on to hope, but justice doesn't always work the way we think it will. Marla figured that out fairly quickly. But first, she underwent surgery on her face, her calling card for her modeling career, and the way she earned her living. I woke up the next morning and, you know, you, it's just your mind can't get itself around that sort of thing. And I kept thinking, I've dreamt this. And I woke up thinking I would be back in my apartment and it was just this bad dream. But woke up and there I was in the hospital um, with a nurse jabbing a needle in my behind. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is real. I'm really here. And um, then the surgeon came in a few minutes later. and. He was adorable. He uh, was standing next to me. He seemed very nervous, but he had this uh, mirror at his, you know, at his side, holding onto it. And one side was a magnifying glass, and the other was a regular one. And I was fixated on the mirror because I wanted to look at myself. And in fact, the night before, before I had surgery, um, when I was in the ER, I wanted to see myself. So I told the nurse I had to go to the loo and jumped up and ran down the hall with my IV attached 
and she chased after me and lunged into the bathroom and said, no, you, you, I know what you're doing. You're not going to the bathroom. You're trying to look at your face, and I'm not going to let you do that. So I never saw myself. Uh -huh. I thought, based on everyone's reactions, that it must be pretty bad. But I was still alive, and then that's all you think about in a moment like that. I'm alive, and you know I survived this because during the attack, I didn't think I would. In fact, I was sure I was going to die, and I was perfectly fine with it. This sort of peace comes over you, and I found myself with a new perspective about, I don't know, 100 feet above my body looking down. And it was just this moment of absolute clarity I've never had before and never had since. But I had disembodied, I guess, and was looking down at the situation, kind of directing myself. But yet there I was up there having my big life review. You know, it's like the cliche you always hear about, where all your life passes before your mind's eye, and that's exactly what it was. Turns out these out-of-body occurrences are absolutely real. Both trauma and near-death experiences can bring them on. I was surprised to learn that nearly one in 10 people will have at least one such episode during their lifetime, and sometimes more. During Marla's experience, she debated with herself whether she was prepared to die, or instead wanted to go on living. Have I really learned everything I can learn as Marla? And the answer was no, I think I can learn a little more. So I said out loud to myself, I want to learn more as Marla. I want to stay here as Marla. And I felt like, I really felt like that um, it was a conscious decision to stay. And if I had chosen, I could have left. It was really wild. And it, it was interesting because it really made me, in the aftermath, question everything I questioned about life and myself. Because if my consciousness was up there, who was down there? You know, I was both places. It was very weird and trippy. and. Um, I think therapists have a name for that, which is disassociation, but to me it felt like something more spiritual than that. When she first woke up from surgery, though, Marla was off balance and not entirely sure whether she was dead or alive. When I first awoke from surgery, I opened my eyes and there was this face over me <laughs> with blonde hair and there was a light right above his head so it was like shining all around him and then this big booming voice said hello Marla and I thought to myself for a second I did not survive and then he said I'm Chuck Scarborough from Channel 4 News <laughs> it was hilarious so that kind of broke the ice and you know it was funny thank God for that moment of levity because sometimes that's exactly what we need to keep going. Marla would still have to look at herself in the mirror, however, and see for herself what so many of us saw when we opened our newspapers back in 1986. All 150 stitches that crisscrossed her face. And getting a look was practically all she could think about when the surgeon checked on her. He was talking to me about what he had done, and all I could think, all I could fixate on was that mirror hanging at his side. So finally, he noticed, and he's like, oh, you want to see yourself? And I said, yes. So he gave me the mirror, but the, the uh, magnifying glass side, I picked it up and I looked at it, and all I saw was this big explosion of stitches. And when I did that, I noticed that every stitch was perfectly formed, exactly the same distance apart, like a beautiful piece of artwork. 
So I was like looking at that, and I said, wow, you know, you did a really beautiful job. That's so nice. Thank you so much. And I think he almost started to cry, the surgeon. <laughs> He's like, are you in shock? I've never had anybody thank me after I, like, stitched their face up like that. And I was like, well, now I was noticing that all the stitches, how perfect they are. You know, you did, like, almost like an artwork. And he said, in fact, he was an artist. He was a sculptor and a painter, as well as a plastic surgeon. So... It was the whole experience from start to finish was just really wild. Um, but I think at that point I was just so appreciative that I was alive. And I had such a great surgeon that you know, did such a beautiful job on my face. In an unlucky situation, I was pretty lucky in the aftermath. So that's what I focused on. If I had to pick one moment from my talk with Marla, when I understood what a resilient and incredible woman she is, I think it would be this moment of gratitude. In the midst of something so horrible, most of us probably can't grasp it. If you don't remember this tragedy, or weren't alive then, Google that photograph from her hospital bed, and you'll see what I mean. Whatever Marla's face looked like at that moment, I think there's no doubt about the condition of her heart. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story by Beverly Willett, beginning again is the series, and the subject, Marla Hansen. And my goodness, it's just, it's remarkable what Americans do, what people do at their most difficult times. What a heart this lady has, and there's a heck of a lot more of her story to follow. How does she overcome this? What happens next? When we come back, more on Marla Hansen's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to the latest story in Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. Stories of folks figuring out how to move forward after a tremendous shock in their lives. And we've been hearing Marla Hansen's stories, and my oh my, what a shock in her life. By now, Marla's attackers have been caught. She's recovering in the hospital, but a whole new series of challenges await her. Marla's attack quickly became national news, and the press hounded her. Before she'd even had time to physically recover, Marla was thrown into the middle of the criminal justice system and the media circus. It was a big press kind of um, 
extravagance. <laughs> I guess it was a slow news day or something. But the press got hold of the story, and there wasn't a TV in my room in the hospital, thank God, because I had no idea what was brewing until the phone started ringing. A year before the trial started, in between that time, there were the investigations, which are, if you've never been through anything like that, pretty eye-opening and traumatic, because you, you have this understanding that the justice system is there for you, but no, it's not because you don't matter. All you are is a piece of information. The justice system is there for the accused. Now, I thought the prosecutor was my attorney, but no, that's not it either. You don't have an attorney. You don't have the right to have an attorney because they don't feel like you need one, even though everything about your life is put into question. Um, it really tears at your sanity. So if I thought my life was gonna be easy when I decided to stay, I was in for a really rude awakening. And um, I was kind of floating on this cloud of appreciation for a while, but that came crashing down when they called me in front of the grand jury and took me straight from the hospital. I had no clothes. Um, I didn't have any underwear. Somebody gave me some clothes that didn't even fit right, um, and I didn't have underwear on. I had none, and I didn't have any way to get any, and they hadn't cleaned my face. I hadn't really even looked at myself. So I wasn't supposed to be talking and moving my face, and yet they made me come and testify. The doctor was beside himself, but, you know, what can you do? As a former attorney, I can tell you, there's not much you can do once you're caught up in the justice system. Things have improved since Marla's experience, but at the time, reform was still in its infancy. Victims' rights advocate Steve Twist agrees with Marla's observation. Too often, victims were treated more like evidence than suffering human beings. Our Constitution's Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to a speedy trial. But there's no similar guarantee of fair treatment for victims. Many people are blindsided when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. As is often said, the process is the punishment. And that's what happened to Marla, too. The defense attorneys called her character into question, and she feel like she was the one being put on trial instead of her attackers. Cast in the role of racist vixen. I had to go testify, and I hadn't had time to gather my thoughts. I hadn't had time to really think through everything, and they're saying, oh, don't worry, just tell us what happened. But what they don't say is, you're stuck to every single word you say and exactly the way you say it. And if you vary from that, you remember something else or you know, something else comes to mind, then that calls your credibility into question. So nobody says that to you. And I didn't have anyone protecting my rights or myself. I just sort of went in there thinking, oh, well, I'm telling the truth, so this is what it's going to be. But in comes Reverend Sharpton and Alton Maddox and the whole crew because two of the guys that cut me were black. The landlord was white. And I didn't, I was completely blindsided by that because here they came and said that I was just some white, and this is their words, bitch from Texas, who saw the first two black guys on the street and pointed my finger at them. That side swiped me. It came from nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know what to say to that. So all of a sudden I was a liar. I was a prostitute who was out there, you know, doing God knows what on a you know, midnight on a street corner. Because they had shoved me to the ground, so my face was basically belt level to the guys when they were cutting me. 
And so what did that look like? You know, so they started saying things like that, and then I put me on the defensive, so all then I could do is defend myself. But then you're not allowed to do that either because you're not, there was a gag order. I wasn't allowed to talk to the press. We hear a lot about victim blaming now, but not so much back then. What happened to Marla was classic. You take a victim and bully and humiliate them at a time when they're at their weakest and most vulnerable and hope a jury will believe that they're partially or fully responsible for what happened to them. And if you object, defense attorneys are of course going to claim that they're just trying to protect their own client's interests. There's a war going on between the prosecution and the defense and victims are essentially caught in the middle. And even though it's natural for a victim to assume they're on the side of the prosecution and that the government is looking out for them, in reality, if you're a prosecutor, you don't want to lose your case. So the police often grill the victim, too, to make sure that this piece of evidence won't crack under pressure. They put you in this room with a hard plastic chair, and there's a chair across from you, and they get up and leave the room, and you sit there for 20 minutes by yourself looking around, and it's not a pretty room either. They come back with a file, and they look at the file, then they look up at you, then they look at the file, they look up at you, they look at the file, they look at you, they look at you, they look at you, then they put the file down, they look at you some more, and they say, and then you're nervous by that time because you're thinking, what are they looking at? Then they start to ask you questions. Is there anything you want to tell us? And you're like, um, no. Are you sure about that? So then you really start getting nervous because then you're seeing yourself through their eyes and you're thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, and you start to feel like you've done something. And um, they were questioning me about everything. Every man in my life, what was I doing out that night, and what skeletons did I have in the closet. And um, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I kept thinking, what have I done? You know, I'm in trouble here. And um, finally, when they finished, they said, oh, well, we have to do that to make sure that you don't have any skeletons in your closet. What does it have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with that night. But all of a sudden, I'm on the defensive again, you know, not only in front of the press and in front of, you know, Reverend Sharpton and Automatics, but now the police are questioning my credibility. And they kept saying, what really happened that night? And he said, I've told you. No, Marla, really. I think you're leaving something out. And you're like, no, not that I can think of. Um, so immediately I realized, okay, this isn't going to be, you know, this isn't me, you know, showing up and telling the truth and thinking everything's going to be okay because right away I realized it's not. This is something much bigger than me. Eventually there would be two trials, one of Marla's landlord and the other trial of the men who had physically attacked her. Marla was required to testify in both. All three men were convicted and sent to jail for the maximum term of 5 to 15 years. Before the sentencing, Marla told reporters she felt humiliated by what she had to undergo. But Marla's poor treatment didn't end there. The judge humiliated her too, intimating she was a flirt and telling Marla in open court that he was incensed at her for talking to reporters, causing Marla to break down in tears. He later apologized after the mayor of New York City told the press he was outraged by the judge's behavior. 
And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Marla Hansen's story. And of course, Beverly Willette is doing the reporting for Beginning Again series. One more segment. We'll find out what happened to Marla Hansen after justice was served and the healing, well, the healing begins. This is Our American Stories, and we're now coming to the conclusion of Marla Hansen's Beginning Again story, a real-life drama of a young model moving to the big city, meeting a degenerate landlord, getting attacked with razor blades for refusing his advances, and being forced to battle the media and the courts as she tried to physically and spiritually heal. Now let's hear more from Beverly Willette but how all of this trauma affected Marla. With the thugs now in jail, you might think this was finally the moment of Marla's vindication. She told me, however, that her treatment by the justice system was worse by a thousandfold than the razors that had slashed her face because the pounding she'd taken had caused deep, invisible wounds to her psyche. Looking back on the experience, she said it was the little moments of kindness from others that got her through. The kindness of her surgeon, of a philanthropist named Milton Petrie, known for helping disaster victims, who gave Marla a small trust fund to keep her going financially. But after the trials were over, Marla was left alone to fend for herself. People told her to get over it and move on with her life already. But it's not that simple for any victim, let alone a victim of a horrific crime like Marla's. Marla said she slept a lot at first. She was depressed. Everywhere she went, people knew her because her face continued to be plastered across the tabloids. People Magazine did an expose, and Marla became known nationally. A movie was made about her experience called The Marla Hansen Story. She received a lot of notoriety, she said, but it wasn't for her career, but as a victim. Her modeling career was over, and victim was a dirty word in our culture as it often still is today, because it makes people uncomfortable. Eventually, Marla got help from a therapist. And the first thing he had her work on was just getting out of bed in the morning. Later on, she went back to college and got a degree in filmmaking. 
through all this, Marla was still angry inside, though. So she began speaking out about what had happened to her. She appeared on Phil Donahue and Larry King Live and other national television shows. She educated therapists, police, the state and local justice departments, and hospitals. And she spoke before women's groups and shared the victim's point of view. She testified before various state legislatures on behalf of rape shield laws that would prohibit introduction of evidence relating to the past sexual conduct of victims. The intention of these laws, many of which were passed, was to safeguard victims from embarrassing questions about their private sex lives and to encourage them to report crimes. In 1994, Congress enacted the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which extended rape shield protections to victims who sued for restitution in civil court proceedings. The Violence Against Women Act was included in the passage of this law and provided funds for investigation and prosecution of violent crimes against women and men, as well as provision for restitution by convicts and the rights for victims to seek civil redress. At the request of former Vice President Joe Biden, Marla testified in hearings before Congress on behalf of the act. She told the U.S. Senate that the stigma of victimization had harmed her more than the attack. Although the word victim implied innocence, she testified that in practice it implied guilt on the part of the victim. She told how she'd been called out for wearing a miniskirt how she'd been castigated for being in a bar at midnight, and even accused of staging the attack just to make money. Today, all states have some form of protection for crime victims, although the level of protection varies. 33 states have adopted amendments to their constitutions, guaranteeing rights to victims. New York, however, isn't one of them. Although New York has victims assistance programs, the website of the New York DA's office points out that criminal cases are prosecuted on behalf of the people and that, quote, victims, therefore, do not need their own attorney. As a crime victim, you are a witness in the prosecution of your case, end quote. In other words, perhaps a piece of evidence. Reform advocates like Steve Twist continue to argue we need an amendment to the U.S. Constitution so that the law guarantees crime victims the same level of protection as those in our society who break it. In 1982, President Ronald Reagan appointed a task force on victims of crime, which recommended that the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantee a victim's right to be heard. A decade and a half later, President Clinton reaffirmed his support for a like amendment. To date, however, there's been no passage of a constitutional amendment granting victims the same equal protection as perpetrators. At some point during her advocacy work, Marla began having delayed reactions to her experiences and suffered from PTSD so she had to put her victim's advocacy work on hold. But eventually she mustered the courage to speak out again and help educate the public this time about PTSD. In 
I'm happy to say that Marla also produced a few films, got married, and had a daughter. And although she's no longer on the speaking circuit, in the long run, I think her empathy for others and advocacy work helped her more than anything else to begin again. Last year, I read about another woman in Manhattan whose face had been slashed by an attacker and how Marla spoke with this most recent victim, as she does with others. I asked her what advice she gives, and she told me that it's the same advice someone once gave her to help her through her own ordeal. I'll tell you, the, the thing that somebody told me that changed my life, it was a big light bulb, and no one had said that to me, was um, I kept looking for the old Marla. I kept trying to get myself back because I couldn't get back to the place I had been. And finally somebody said to me, why are you trying to do that? The old Marla is not there anymore. It's like the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center. It's in rubble on the ground. You don't exist anymore. The Marla you knew doesn't exist. But the beauty in that, and when you recognize that, like that person is gone forever, and you just have to mourn the loss. It's like a death. You mourn the loss of who you were. But the great news is you have the power to rebuild whatever you want and that you're in control of that because I never felt in control. And she handed me back control of my life with that and, you know, gave me the tools to start to rebuild. And that, that was the best advice anybody had given me. After talking with this amazing woman, however, I think that new, beautiful brave, inspiring Marla Hansen was always right there inside that old one. This is Our American Stories, and what a great, great story from Beverly Willette. Again, part of her Beginning Again series. And Marla Hansen's story, an important one, on the victim's rights front. I kept looking for the old Marla, And Marla's not here anymore, a friend told her. The Marla you know doesn't exist. And so she mourned the loss. And she moved forward and built the new Marla. And for victims, countless victims everywhere in this country, it's the same. I worked for a short time in a prosecutor's office. And it just horrified me how some of the prosecutors, and not all of them, there were some really decent and good prosecutors, but the political prosecutors, the ones looking to be governor, run for office, oh my goodness, the only thing they cared about was their record. They cared about clearing the case right, making sure it was buttoned up so it couldn't be on the, on the appellate front, a problem for them. And I saw that firsthand, and I can only imagine what that might be like in a larger system like the New York Police Department, NYPD, a great department, by the way, and great prosecutors. But you know what? The system, the system just, it isn't designed for the victim, as you heard. And so thanks to all the folks who are doing great victims' rights works. Thank you, Marla. And the next time I'm in New York, I'm going to look you up. We owe you a dinner. We owe you so much more for helping us and helping folks who are victims hear this story. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. Check out all of our work all the work that we do on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Marla Hansen's story. A remarkable, 
Remarkable Beginning Again story by Beverly Willett. This is Our American Stories, and welcome to a very special best of. We do these now and then, and we always like to start off with funny ones. And this one comes from our regular contributor, former USA sports guy, and all-around sports guy, Nate Scott, who brings us a story of something quite strange that happened to a close friend of his, only in New York, folks. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. We had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though. 
and no one can take that away from me. <laughs> and no, they can't. And we love doing this days in history. As always, they're brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, please go to hillsdale.edu. Check out all their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis, it's indispensable. And on the day in history, we talked about this story. It was the day that Rocky debuted. And so we dug up a conversation with Sylvester Stallone. And America loves an underdog story, as you know, in Rocky. Well, this story may be the quintessential underdog movie. And how this movie came to be is itself a quintessential underdog story. Written by an unknown actor and the most unlikely of screenwriters, Sylvester Stallone himself tells this story. He was down and out. He had a little money in the bank, $106 to be precise. He even sold his precious dog, Butkus. But then one night, there was a big fight on TV between Chuck Wepner, a white brawler from Bayonne, called the Bayonne Brawler, and Muhammad Ali. Here is Sylvester Stallone talking about how that fight changed his life. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against, you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Back, slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rib of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! And for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bump turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered for all eternity, at least uh, uh, among the fight fans. He did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst for an idea. A man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. The studios liked the script, but they had other ideas about Stallone starring in the lead part. Here, Stallone talks about how he somehow, intuitively, knew that he should not sell the script he wrote without himself in it. This is one heck of a story. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and, and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all you know, were, were at the top of their game. And so I could see it, but there was something inside of me that said, you know, this opportunity is never going to come around. And I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing. But the temptation started to come forward. First it was... Uh, Twenty-five grand and a hundred thousand dollars. I never heard of a hundred thousand because I had had like a hundred six dollars in the bank, and like I said, I had to sell my dog, and things were not looking very, very good. Uh, my forty-dollar car had just blown up, so I was taking a bus to work, and but still, it it didn't matter. I wanted to stick with it. Then it went up to one hundred fifty thousand, one hundred seventy-five thousand, it went up to two hundred fifty thousand. Now my head was starting to spin, and it went up to three hundred thirty thousand. And probably, I heard it went up to 360000 And I thought, all right, you know, you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like, sort of figured it out. So I was not um, in, in any way uh, used to, to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell the script... And it does very, very well. I'm going to jump off a building. 
And if I'm not in it, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants. Say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong, and I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. The film, made on a budget of just over $1 million and shot in 28 days, was a sleeper hit. It earned $225 million in global box office receipts, becoming the highest-grossing film of 1976. Rocky went on to win three Oscars, including Best Picture. This is Our American Stories. More of our best-of show after these messages. our American stories, our best of version, and when you hear that song, you know it's final thoughts. And for all of us here, the eulogy that killed us, the eulogies that killed us last year, were all given at Arnold Palmer's funeral. It was a life so well lived, and you can always tell a life well lived by the quality and nature of the people who talk about you when you've died. And boy, did they come out for Arnold Palmer's funeral, and from every walk of life. Jack Nicholas could not make it through it. He just cried. And major CEOs, kids from Latrobe, the little town he grew up in near Pittsburgh. He never left Latrobe. He actually built a landing strip there and learned how to fly so he could get back home to his family. He didn't want the touring life to separate him from regular life. And so what we want to do is just play a couple of clips from this remarkable Final Thoughts episode that we had last year. Here is Arnold Palmer's grandson talking about Grandpa. And that's what he did. He always wanted to talk to me. He always wanted to be there for us. And he 
faithful for the rest of my life that I called him at 4.10 on the Sunday when he passed away. I called him. He answered the phone on the first ring in the hospital preparing for surgery the next morning. Indeed. And the last person to speak, well, he didn't have words to tell either. The man, Vince Gill. And so Vince, he came up to the podium with a guitar, because that's all he could do. And he sang his and Arnold Palmer's favorite song. They shared this song in common. And if you'll notice, he tweaked the lyrics just a little bit. Let's take a listen to Vince Gill. I'm Vince. I'm the golfer none of you have ever heard of. Um, I just want to thank the family for the gift of uh, the invitation to come here and honor an old friend. It means more to me than you'll ever know. This um, this man was uh, my favorite person. Not my favorite golfer, but my favorite person that I ever met.
And as we learned, by the way, in this remarkable, almost three-hour-long memorial, which we could have just fed into live. By the way, in Pittsburgh, they did. I have friends there, and they said, you won't believe what you're missing. And so thanks to you all. We, we always listen to you when you send us good stuff. And what we learned about Arnold Palmer is he democratized this sport. He was a middle-class kid, and he always acted like it, and he always shook everyone's hand. And you heard it over and over again. He treated everyone the same, the president of the United States, the local auto mechanic. And that's all you can ask for in life is that kind of grace. Now another regular favorite segment, random acts of kindness. And, well, this one comes from a Chicagoan. He sent it into us. John Yast. Let's take a listen to his story. This afternoon, after running a few errands, I stopped by the Horse Thief Hollow Brewing Company in Beverly on Chicago's south side for a bowl of their really terrific chili. On being seated, I noticed a pair of Chicago cops having lunch nearby. I asked my server if the police still get meals for free, and he replied that they get a discount, but it's not free. So I told him to give the cops the usual discount, but I'd take care of the check. I assumed he'd be discreet and not finger the donor. But when the pair had finished their lunch, the female officer came over and thanked me. You have no idea how much it means. I was about to remind her that it was only 20 bucks when she continued, Everyone hates us. So if you see a cop or two having a cup of coffee or a meal, please show them that not everyone hates them. When I asked my server about revealing my identity, he said cops have a way of getting people to talk. I guess I should have seen that one coming. When I asked for my tab, the server told me, the man at the first table over there insisted on paying your bill. He wanted to buy lunch for the cops, but you beat him to it. Not sure if it's important to the story, but I think it might be. The man who bought my lunch is black. This is our American Stories. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, thanks to all of you for your submissions. You send them in, we send them back. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American Stories, a special best of episode. And now we want to bring you the story of Louis Zamperini. 
And you may know the story. Captured by the Japanese, tortured, beaten. If you've read Laura Hillenbrand's book, you know the whole story. By the way, Laura also wrote Seabiscuit. She loves writing about wounded things that get healed. Well, Angelina Jolie made the movie, and she left out some important parts. Because when Louis comes back, some remarkable things happen in his life. He comes back, and he's wounded, and he's angry. I mean, imagine you've been tortured, so he, you have every right to be bitter. He, he has problems with his marriage. His wife's about to divorce him because he's hitting her. He's screaming at her. His kids are just scattered. Well, this event in his life changed everything, and it was not in Angelina's version of Laura's book. But the nightmares started in prison because every day when he would punish me, I'd clench my fist. And he knew I wanted to hit him. And he said, if I draw my sword, I must use it. So I had nightmares there all the way home. And I, there was never a night I didn't dream about getting this guy. And uh, so, but when I woke up in a cold sweat uh, with my hand around my wife's throat, that really scared me. And of course, it scared her. <laughs> and, uh, and then she, and we were... A young couple in the apartment came to uh, our apartment and knocked on the door and started telling us about a young evangelist coming to L.A. And he started to quote scripture. And boy, that, that hit me. I, I said, hey, I'm out of here. And my, my wife listens. And when Billy came, they talked her into going down with them. And she, in the meantime, she'd already filed for a divorce. And then uh, but when she came home and tried to get me to go down, I fought her. Uh, but then she said something that softened me up. She said, because of my conversion, I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that really softened me up a bit. And so she was able to persuade me to go down here, Billy. But then again, he was quoting scripture, and that really <laughs> hit me between the eyes. And I said, I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a sinner. I know I am. And so I got mad, pulled her on home. Uh, but uh, the next day, she's all over me again. And and I said, okay, okay, I'll go back on one condition. When he says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out. And so back again we went, and Billy's finishing the sermon. And I said, let's go. And then he said something like, um, when people come to the end of their rope and they have no else to turn, they turn to God. And I thought, yeah, that's what I did. And I, on the raft in prison camp, all the prisoners were praying about the same prayer, get me home alive to my family and I'll seek you and serve you. Well, he got me home alive and I didn't keep my promise and that really hit me between the eyes. So instead of leaving the tent, I went back to the prayer room and made a confession of my faith in Christ. And that Billy, by the way, was Billy Graham. That other, that man he was talking about was a man called the bird, the guy who tortured him. And ultimately, well, Louis had a challenge before him. And the challenge to forgive that man who tortured him and all the others. Louis continued this compelling story, again left out of Angelina Jolie's version of Unbroken. And here Louis talks about the miracles that happened in his life. I have received Christ as my Savior. I knew while I was still on my knees that I was a different person. And I didn't know what happened. And then later, of course, as I began to study the Scriptures, I realized that uh, when I invited Christ into my life... And therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new person. That was the answer. But at that time, I didn't know it. I just knew something phenomenal happened. And I had no, not the slightest hate for the bird anymore. I loved everybody. And uh, so the first miracle was uh, uh, not having the nightmares. Or I should say my conversion, not having nightmares. And then the third miracle was uh, the Bible. I could never understand it. 
in the Pacific, they gave us olive drab Bibles, and nobody could understand it. So we just threw it in our footlocker. So I took uh, the, my, my olive drab New Testament, I walked up into the Hollywood Park, and I started to read it, and now it made sense. And uh, when I got to the, uh, the, uh, the crucifixion on the cross and uh, the treatment that uh, God the Son went through, the, and the torture and the humiliation, I started to cry. I never cried in my life, but uh, nobody could make me cry as a kid. I was just defiant, but this did it. If it had been for the war or Watanabe and the post-traumatic stress, that's what drove me to Christ. When I got on my knees and accepted Christ, what a relief to know that I'd passed from one life into another. You know, one of his last interviews was with you, Hewitt, and you had asked him, Louis, what were the big events in your life? And he said there were two. I crashed into an ocean, and I crashed into Jesus Christ. And so when Angelina Jolie leaves out the Billy Graham part, well, it's just, it's unforgivable, and I'm a Christian. The movie should have been called Broken, not Unbroken, because what unbroke him was the part she left out. And last but not least, one of our favorite stories of the year came from Debbie Bisden. And somehow Jesse found this. He was surfing the web on an online women's magazine. And Jesse, I'm not sure. No, I think my wife found it. Uh, yeah, right. right. Your wife found it. No, Jesse, with the therapist bills, you can put them on us. It's a part of the basic medical coverage. Uh, and so, Debbie, well, the title of the piece, I was a little resident, reticent at first to do this story. The title is Stop Being a Butthole Wife. Stop Being a Butthole Wife. No, I'm serious. End it. Let's start with the laundry angst. I get it. The guy can't find the hamper. It's maddening. It's insanity. The day my husband left earth for heaven, all of my marriage problems vanished. There was no one to fuss at, negotiate with, or play possum at bedtime. You know, when you pretend you're asleep to bypass sex. I wanted a perfect husband who acted how I wanted, and if that didn't happen, well, butthole wife was in full effect. If only he could understand how right I was and how wrong he'd always be, I needed to instruct him, question him, and remind him of his shortcomings. The reality is, I wasn't helping him or our marriage by pointing out each fault I was poisoning the relationship. Oh, it was still a good marriage, and we deeply loved each other, but it was not what it could have been, and now it was too late. Days after his funeral, I stared at our dirty clothes basket that sat atop our dryer, knowing his clothes were inside. I sighed so deeply. Before me was the last load of laundry I would ever or wash before me for that sweet man was the last load of laundry there would be I would ever wash for that sweet man there would be no more dirty socks to pick up around the house ever a week before I would have rolled my eyes at that basket but now it held priceless treasures I waited weeks to wash those clothes my heart ached for dirty socks to once more be a part of my days. And God later gave me a special gift. 
He has allowed me to love again, to wear a second wedding dress, and to be a better wife. I now strive to hug more and nag less. My goal is to make him feel respected, important, valued. Recently, I walked into the master bedroom and I stopped, nearly bursting into tears. I saw a pile of dirty clothes that my new husband had abandoned on the floor. As I stared at the pile, I smiled. I knew he had hurried to change out of work clothes into comfy clothes so he could spend more time with his new family. He had chosen what is more important. I happily scooped the treasures into my arms and carried them to the washing machine. I get to do this. I get to serve. I get to live with a wonderful man who ditches laundry for people. Let us not become weary in doing good. Galatians six nine. And thanks so much for that, Debbie, and for all the guys listening. Thank you too. And it's just beautiful. And we try periodically to give you some context in your lives and to lift your spirits. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling, no opinion. This is Our American Stories. Our best of continues. You won't believe the Robert Plant story we're about to tell you. You don't know it, but you'll like it. Our American Stories, our final segment in our special best of two hours. We love doing segments about Americana, about the hobbies and pastimes that Americans have. And we spent an hour looking at the lives of the people who dress up and become our favorite sports mascots. We talked to the original Philly fanatic, David Raymond, about the Mascot Hall of Fame that he was building. We also talked with Robert Bowden about his 20-year career as Clutch the Rocket Bear, And that's, of course, the mascot for the NBA's Houston Rockets. Here's Robert telling us one of the craziest things that ever happened to him as a mascot. I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, My first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera, and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humped me from behind, and then I thank him for it. By the way, it's good that you didn't feel it, is all I can say. 
Well, coming up here, the story of Kitty Sargent. Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern, Alex's brother, and then he went back to school at Boston College. While reading the B.C. student newspaper, The Gavel, he came across a story by a young woman named Kitty Sargent. Well, she's college class of 2016. She takes us on a journey of self-doubt and self-discovery. How did this self-described, awkward, insecure girl become a happy and confident young woman? I walked into my 7th grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. My hair was straight and shiny, and my smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward 7th grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. It was this girl, Gabrielle. Wow, Kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty? But I could be? I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next ten years. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The watch-and-see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body, because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me, and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best, not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. 
I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. And thank you for that, Kitty. And our last segment, and our favorite of the year, the story of an artist, Robert Plant, his second American rebirth. He was the front man of one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, Led Zeppelin. His name, well, we just said it, and it's Robert Plant. He and his British mates took America by storm in the late 60s through to the end of the 70s. Inspired by the blues musicians of the Mississippi Delta, they reinvented and repackaged it as only they could, and it turned into some of the most explosive music ever recorded. They made only eight albums back when people actually recorded albums and sold 200 plus million records. That's right, 200 million. And then tragedy struck the band. In 1977, Plant's five-year-old son died. The stomach virus turned into something much worse. The seeds of a Zeppelin breakup were sown. And then in 1980, drummer John Bonham died, and with him, Led Zeppelin. There was no replacing Bonham. And as Robert Plant later explained, he didn't want to be the lead singer of a Led Zeppelin cover band the rest of his life. He struggled. He tried new things. Some worked. Some didn't. And then he returned to a very different kind of American roots music for his rebirth. He returned to Nashville, to the Smoky Mountains, and to the music of Appalachia, and the old songs of those hill people. I found that there was more stuff underneath the covers mm. going on and it was still coming from Ireland and, pla- and places in Tennessee and in the mountains where people just hadn't moved on families lived there for five generations without shifting from one township so the music followed down through the families and we got really old songs there in 2010 plant along with the band of joy he'd won a Grammy with Alison Krauss just a year or two before performed live for the BBC, and closed out their show with this song, one you wouldn't expect from the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. And as it turns out, this is a song Plant had wanted to sing for a very, very long time. I finally got my way after uh, so many thousands of years of saying, why don't you finish the show with a song that says everything and... uh Tried to sell the idea to a few people down the line, but we've got it now, so. Lay down, my dear sister, won't you lay and take your rest? Won't you lay your head upon my Savior's breast? But I love you, but Jesus loves you the best, and I bid you good night, good night. Good night. Oh, I bet you good night. Good night. Good night. One of these mornings, bright and early and fine. Good night. Good night. That was Plant in the first verse, singing along with some of the best Nashville voices. And a little bit later, the curtain pulls back and a gospel choir appears. And this is how the concert closed out. I was walking in Jerusalem just like John. Good night, good night. I was walking in Jerusalem just like John. Good night, good night. Good night. 
It was a song he'd wanted to sing his whole life, he said. And he didn't. Until then. Sometimes you need to be in your 50s, in your 60s, to get comfortable in your own skin. We tried to find out who the writer of that song was. We couldn't. It was like so many of those old gospel traditional songs just passed through from generation to generation. No authorship required when celebrating the Lord. Then people didn't want to claim authorship. This is Lee Habib. The story of Robert Plant utterly connected to the American story. This is Our American Stories.